Well, good afternoon. My name is Eric Martel, and welcome back to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today we have Kyle Mitchell uh, on the uh, on our podcast. And uh, Kyle Mitchell is a multifamily investor and syndicator. They have a lot of uh, properties in Arizona and Tucson, for example. And um, so he's very active investor and uh, very busy and doing uh, some uh, very large projects. So um, welcome to the show, Kyle. Eric, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I think a lot of the people that uh, that are listening to my podcast, they are, uh, a lot of them, they're kind of like getting started. So there's a lot of education curve that I have to uh, uh, to go through and kind of explain kind of how do you get from your nine to five jobs into now all of a sudden being an entrepreneur, the CEO of your company, and then making passive income so that you can uh, you know, have financial freedom. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about kind of like your, um, your path uh, in real estate investment, why you chose real estate investing uh, in the first place? Yeah, so my path is one that, you know, I did have a nine to five job for 16 years, um, actually longer than that, if you count like high school and all that kind of stuff on yeah. part time jobs. But uh, and then recently, about a year and a half ago, I left my W-2. So happy to share with the listeners on, on what my process was. Um, but my background was I was a regional manager for a golf management company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that for 16 years as a regional manager. And, um, you know, my company was shrinking. I wanted to be growing. And so I started looking for an alternative career. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2010 is when I found real estate by house hacking my first house. Um, yeah. I bought it as a primary house, but I moved in two of my friends and, uh, you know, it was a fixer upper. And as we lived in it and they paid me rent, I fixed it up. Mm-hmm. And then, um, a few years later, I sold that property for a profit and then I moved those into uh, single family turnkeys in the Midwest. And I liked that model. However, I wanted to scale faster. Uh, yeah. and so I started looking for another vehicle and that's when I found multifamily and at that time in my career, I really wanted to move into something new. It did take me quite a few years. So I had just saved up a nest egg. And as soon as mm-hmm. I found it, it really spoke to me. I fell in love with it. You know, it was the same thing that I had been doing my pa- the past 16 years, which is, you know, managing a business. And that's what okay. multifamily is, is managing a business. It's, it's implementing systems, managing people, you know, driving in tr- income and, and controlling expenses. And so yeah. as soon as I saw that, I fell in love with the business model. And 11 months after I found it, uh, I educated myself and I left my full-time job to do this full-time. Well, congratulations. That's a big, that's a big step. I think there is there's a, some comfort in having a W-2 job, even though there's a lot of uh, hidden risk associated with that that people don't, uh, don't really appreciate. But uh, yeah, it takes, some, it takes some courage to basically leave that false sense of security behind and then, uh, and then go on it alone. Because, you know, if it doesn't work out, it's on you. <laughs> you know, you have nobody else to blame. You can't say, well, you know, the com- company didn't go as well. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, you hit it on the head, though. That's the false sense of security, right? Because, yeah. you know, with a W-2, you really are reliant on someone else to allow you to work there and, and yeah. certain conditions to, to um, keep that job. So, you know, I am now of the mindset, it did take a while to get through that mindset. You know, it took me a year to pull the trigger after I decided. And, um, yeah. But now looking back, you know, I'm in control of my own destiny and all the decisions that I make 
um, are made for the betterment of myself, not for the company that I work for yeah. that may result in whatever it does, whether it's good or bad for you. So uh, it's certainly, there's certainly risks to both. And in my world, I'd rather have control of those risks. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think there's a sense, I think even like if you get the, have a very well paid job, it kind of, uh, you kind of have a, like an addiction factor because you're making a lot of money coming in and then you're just like, you're addicted to the lifestyle and all of that. You may not like your job, but you know, well, you know, it pays the bill and a little bit more. And then you're just like, it's, it gets harder, I think, to, to leave that behind. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's just a mindset shift, right? I mean, I think uh, as an entrepreneur, you're certainly putting all the work in up front for a result that you're hoping to be um, a positive one in the end. And sometimes it takes years and years and even decades to build that up. And so a lot of people like that, um, you know, false sense of security by having a paycheck come in on an, an every other week basis versus putting the work up front. But certainly you can reap major rewards if you're an entrepreneur and you put in the work up front um, to really get that result. As far as, you know, a, a W-2, there's nothing wrong with a W-2 if that's what your personality fits you. And, yeah. and um, you know, when I was in my W-2, I just thought about, man, 30 years from now, do I want to be doing the same thing? And maybe I can retire, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe not. No, I don't. I'd rather really grind out for the next five or 10 years mm -hmm. and uh, create the life that I, I want to live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so, and I think that uh, what is nice about your your path or the uh, the, the road you traveled is really uh, kind of it's typical also of uh, of the younger generation that are coming in. They are kind of like they're just getting started. They have a, a job. They're doing they making some money, and then they're talking about doing house hacking. So, house hacking is uh, I mean it's been around forever. I, I did that when I was uh, younger as well with our first house. When we bought our first house, we couldn't afford it. So we decided to finish the basement and then rent out the basement with, uh, you know, an independent uh, entrance and all of that. So personally, well, I'll, I'll let you talk about it. What is your experience with, uh, with house hacking? And um, would you... Would you do that again? Any lessons learned about house hacking and you, you recommend it for other people? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're just getting started, it's a perfect way to get started. You know, you learn a lot about, you know, what types of things need to happen once you close on a property. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, if you do move someone in, they could help pay for that rent. Um, you know, I learned a lot during that house hack because I, you don't know what you don't know. So for example, we paid a contractor to help out with the kitchen and I ended up giving him uh, the full deposit or the full payment up front. And uh, I, it was a referral through a friend. So I thought I can trust him and that person disappeared for three months. And I wow. uh, luckily able to get a hold of his brother. Uh, and this was my last, you know, eight to $10,000 we're talking about. I, I had to pull everything out of my pocket to put the down payment. Um, you know, friends and family were telling me that uh, it's, you've got to buy a single family home. You've got to buy your first residence. It's the best time to buy. Looking back, it was a good time, but um, you know, I gave him all my money. And, and uh, like I said, luckily his brother came back and then felt bad and ended up doing the job, but it just wasn't as high quality. And uh, you've got to be careful who you trust and definitely don't pay 
a contractor in full up front. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times what they do is they take, you know, the money from one job to source another job and, and that keeps rolling over and it's a big snowball. So, you know, definitely vetting your contractors um, and knowing who you're working with so you can trust is, is one of the biggest things. And then also if you're going to, move someone in while you're house hacking. I'm grateful that I had my friends there yeah. um, and not just other residents because um, it was a disaster for a while. I mean, we didn't have flooring for uh, you know a month oh, as we redid wow. the flooring and waited on the contractor. Uh, there were cats that were living underneath the house and so there were fleas everywhere. And so we had to oh, bomb the house twice. And so, <laughs> you know, there's all those types of things. And so it just, um, it teaches you for sure that real estate is not a perfect investment, but at the same time, if you plan it out and go about it the right way, it can be very lucrative. Yeah, yeah. My house hack, I mean, this was our first house that uh, I bought with my wife. And then, so again, we finished the basement, we rented it out, but it was a stranger. And then uh, part of the problem is that then I became like the property manager for this. Mm -hmm. So I had to, you know, fix toilets and fix this and fix that and do this. And then, and then they stopped, they, the, the guy lost his job. Then we had to try to evict them and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's one thing to evict somebody that's far, far away. It's another thing when the person is living in your basement and then they're just creating all kinds of problems and all so it was not a good experience. So that was the last, the last house hack that house hack that I did. Um, after that, we just said, okay, well, not a not a too uh, not a good idea for me. Also, there was also uh, I didn't like the lack of privacy. Like I'm kind of a pretty private person and stuff like that. So I didn't like to have somebody kind of like walking in when you know we're having a barbecue or something like that. Yeah. I think for me, I would probably house hack, but not uh, move someone in. So if I, if I were to purchase another home that maybe I wanted to live in, it was in the perfect location, yeah. but it needed some work and it was my wife and I, yeah, yeah. we'd maybe cordon off one section of the house and then do yeah. the rest and then move over to the other part of the house. But it's a fantastic way for people to add value to a property. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I know people who do that every three to four years, they'll go in Yep. you know, they'll fix it up and then they'll leave. And when you sell, if you're in the property for two out of the five years, you mm -hmm. actually do not have to pay any tax on the, on the profits yep. up to 250 if you're single and up to 500,000 if you're, if you're yep. married. And so uh, a lot of people do that and, and it's a source of income for them. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think it's, I think it's a great idea. I just want to make sure that, you know, people, if they do that, they understand that it is, uh, you know, it's, it's an experience. Let's just say, no doubt about it. <laughs> Think about it. If you're very uh, particular about your things and very private person might be, you know, you just have to realize that you're giving up something to, to get that. But uh, all in all, yeah, I mean, if we didn't have house hacking, we wouldn't have been able to buy that house. Uh, and then when we sold it, I mean, we made money on the, obviously on that, that was tax free and all that. So, you know, there is some benefits, but you just have to, you know, delay gratification and then uh, imagine that, okay, well, I'm giving up some things today for something better later on. Yeah, if I didn't house hack the first house, I wouldn't have had the capital to go in and start buying, you know, the turnkeys and then which eventually got me into multifamily. So, you know, definitely it was delaying gratification, but ultimately it was uh, worth it to um, catapult me into the space where I could actually purchase and, and buy real estate on my own. Yeah. 
So after that, so after the house hacking experience and all that, then you moved into single family, turnkey single, turnkey single family or just single family rentals that you did like a burger strategy? The first one I purchased was in California and it was a, um, it was a single family home that was not a burr. And uh, I put in a California resident that knew what he was doing and yeah. um, I had to evict him. And, you know, six to seven months later, uh, I said, I'm never investing in California again. The landlord tenant laws out here are outrageous. And so that's, that's when I took my funds. I sold that house, uh, still ended up making a small profit because I was the realtor on that deal. So I was able to save on the commission. But um, nonetheless, it was six to seven months of stress. That's yeah. when I sold and took my capital and started buying turnkeys out of state in the Midwest. Okay. okay. So where, where in the Midwest? Yeah. So I started with Arkansas because it is the, uh -huh. one of the most landlord friendly States in the nation, yeah, yeah, if yeah. not the most friendly five days and you can be evicted. And so wow. knock on wood, never had a late uh, payment in rent on those properties. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I first started buying. And, you know, I, I broke my one rule by buying in the next market. My one rule is to only purchase going forward in landlord friendly States. And I yeah. unfortunately saw cash flow and my, you know, eyes got blurry and I, I went to Chicago and purchased Ooh. in Chicago. And uh, the cash flow is three to four times what it was in Arkansas. Yeah. But, you know, what looks good on paper does not always look good in actual reality. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for the first 12 months, those properties performed well. Um, but for the last two years, they really haven't. I've had a ton of evictions. Eviction processes take three to four months in Chicago. They're expensive. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, I didn't buy in a great neighborhood either. So it's hard mm -hmm. to get good residents in there. Um, I've sold two of them, but I still have two and they're a little underwater. So I've just got to lease them up and kind of break even until I can um sell them when they've appreciated a little bit more and i yeah. paid down my debt yeah yeah yeah. wow um, so arkansas where in arkansas i was looking at little rock arkansas yep i have one in little rock and one in sherwood and okay. uh, those are about two two hours from one another the little rock property has done really well uh haven't seen a lot of appreciation in the rents as much as i'd like to see but you know a constant bump on a year-over-year -year basis and yeah. uh like i said I, i've never seen a, a late payment in that market um which is which is fantastic yeah that's good i mean that's uh yeah that's very good and yeah and then i also own in uh ohio um okay. in uh, dayton ohio okay and, yeah uh, I have three homes that, well, I had three homes. I'm, I sold two, so I have one now. But so basically I built my portfolio up to nine single family homes. And yeah. once you get to that 10th, you've got to um, restructure how you're going to do things because the lender will, for financing, it's tougher to get yeah. financing after your 10th loan. And so that's when I started taking a look around and saying, hey, is there another way? How can I scale? In yeah. a single family, it was tough for me to scale. And so that's when I started looking around and found multifamily. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so that's um, so that's very interesting about uh, Little Rock because I was looking at that market as well. I mean, our first criteria when we look at the uh, where we're going to invest, I mean, that's the first thing that we look at is landlord-friendly states. Yep. Um, so that's that was uh, critical, uh, and then we look at then we look more about the demographics and stuff like that when we look at the different metropolitan areas in terms of. Um, you know, kind of like business diversification, unemployment and all of that. And we kind of dive in and then we dive into the neighborhood. But um, yeah, so Dayton, Ohio, as you know, I mean, uh, we are in Cleveland. We do a lot of investment in Cleveland uh, and around and around that area. Um, and that's, yeah, we're very happy with uh, with Ohio. I think it's, 
a great, great place to invest. Cleveland, we really like, um, you know, and then we have a great team on the ground there. So, so that's very good. Sounds like you had a good experience in Dayton as well. Yeah, um, those, those houses have done fine. You know, I just, um, I'm not a, a huge proponent of single family um, as much as I am multifamily now, yeah. but it doesn't mean you can't be successful in single family. I mean, mm -hmm. I know tons of people that are successful in single family um, yeah. and, and do well. I just understand the business model of multifamily because of my past experience mm -hmm. um, running the golf courses. So multifamily really speaks to me and, mm -hmm. and I love doing it. I love being an owner operator. Um, and so I love how multifamily has uh multiple ways to control the business, multiple line items, multiple income uh, line items and expense items. Yeah. So for me, I, I can be more creative and also mm -hmm. control some of those items. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And I think, I, I think the single family rental, I think it's a great, great business, great way to get in uh, for somebody that is, uh, is brand new. I mean, you had, you had a real estate uh, experience and license before. So you've got some training and some understanding of how the real estate uh, market works. Uh, not everybody's like that. So I think uh, for me, like the single family rental, it's a good way to get started, know kind of what you like and what, what, that, uh, what that entails, whether you're, you're a landlord type person and then you can kind of set up your organization to to make it work and decide if this is really something that you want to do and then uh and then yeah there comes a time where at, at the tenth uh at, when it's time to get your tenth mortgage or whatever yeah you have to find a different structure for your loans uh either do like a portfolio loan or something like that or uh find a find a uh, get married yeah <laughs> i wouldn't suggest making the decision to get married based on getting more loans but yeah definitely you know, if, you, if you're married you can get up to 20 now right one uh one per spouse or 10 per spouse so yeah so um so that's the other option but then you still limit then you're just delaying the uh the decision obviously yep um and then multifamily. so so uh, tell me a little bit more about kind of like your transition to multifamily. You basically said that, you know, you had a lot of experience. You, you're kind of like, you already like the idea that it feels more like you're managing a business. And then, um, so tell me more about that transition when you were starting to look for that first multifamily and then uh, kind of like your process for doing that. Yeah, for me, I was not actually looking for multifamily specifically when I was looking for a new career. Um, and at that point, I was just thinking of the single families. And then when I found multifamily by just searching online and thinking about different ways that I can lead my golf career, I ran across multifamily and I said, man, there's no way that I could buy apartments. And that's a mindset thing, you know, yeah. it's all about mindset. And so there was a cheap course online that I ended up taking. It took three weeks. My wife and I did it. And I was, my mind was blown and I fell in love with it. And so at that point, we created our company within a month and started a meetup. And from there, we just started building our network, educating ourselves. You know, I was driving an hour and a half to two hours every day to and from work. And so I would listen to eBooks or uh, audio books and podcasts. Um, and I listened to them on two speeds. So I'm 
doubling the amount of information that I'm getting. So, you know, I did that for 11 months and uh, I learned a lot and I would go to meetups after work and things like that. And then at the 11 month mark, the reason why I decided to leave my job before we even had purchased our first multifamily was because we had picked our markets, we had built our team, we felt like our investor database was strong enough. And so we were starting to make active offers. And, uh, you know, there's different uh, job duties that you can go into multifamily and be a part of a team in you can be an underwriter, a deal finder, you know, you can bring network liquidity. There's all those things, but my background is an operator. And so I wanted to be a lead sponsor and an operator. And when you're doing that, you're kind of involved in every aspect of multifamily and the business. Yeah. And I just knew if I wanted to be successful in it, I would need to jump head first and I would not be able to juggle my full-time job and this company at the same time. And so, you know, for respect out of my company as well, I wanted to make sure that they were getting my full attention, which they were not, uh, which is why I left and pursued multifamily full time. And two months later, we were ended up getting our first property um, out in Tucson. And then, uh, okay, so that sounds good. So you mentioned something about investor database. So, So you took the course, you, you know, all of that, and you say, this is what I want to do. And then, yeah, there are different roles when you, especially when you're looking at the larger projects, there are different roles associated that can come in to play, to facilitate uh, a multifamily kind of, uh, kind of deal. But you mentioned something about uh, the investor database. So you started to build an investor database. So how did you, how did you do that? Yeah, it started very slowly, but as you meet people, it's important to tell them what you're doing and what you're interested mm-hmm. in. And it's very surprising how many people are interested to hear about it, you know? Yeah. So that was one of the ways. The other way was we were going to meetups. I mean, my wife and I would go to meetups after work three or four times a week. I would go mm-hmm. on the weekends and you collect business cards and things like that. And at first, your database are not. Um, necessarily a huge list of interested investors. It's just people who you met and that are interested to learn more about what you're going to do and keep tabs on you. Um, But then it it slowly starts to snowball and develop as people see that you're serious about what you're going to do. So, you know, conferences uh, is another good one. Our meetup, Mm -hmm. uh, we now have three meetups and and two podcasts. And so there's, there's different ways to start building up that list, but it does take time. And so I was not someone that knew, (coughs) excuse me, a bunch of high net worth individuals. And so it was not going to be easy for us to raise money on our first go around. So we knew that we need to build up that list and take time before we started making serious offers on properties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah. I mean, and also like for me, like a a lot of the time, uh, having a deal really facilitate that conversation because um, there's a lot of people that, yeah, they, they want to invest. They potentially would want to invest, but then there's kind of like how much can they actually invest into your deal and a question of timing. So, yeah, I mean, if you have a deal now, I have the cash available, but if you talk to me six months from now, I may already have invested my little bit of money somewhere somewhere that is the biggest thing i learned when raising money for the first time is that it really is all about timing and not just you know do they do they invest it with someone else but you get a a peek behind the curtains of actual an actual person's life right i mean this is real money to them that they've earned and it's hard-earned money and life happens and so maybe they just took a vacation or maybe they're on vacation and they just don't want to deal with it right now but they do want to invest in the future or maybe they just had a baby maybe someone died in the family i mean 
there's so many different things that happen and you have to plan for that. And so when you're raising capital, I always tell people, look, if you have commitments, if someone said, yes, I want to invest with you for a million dollars, you can only count on half of that at most, I think. And if you get more, great, fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't consider a verbal commitment someone that's definitely going to invest for that specific deal because life happens, timing happens. And so it's got to be the right time. And I would say 50% or less of those people, it's going to be the right time for that deal. Yeah. Yeah. So the last, the last building that uh, we bought in uh, Midtown Memphis, uh, it was a 16 unit apartment building. And um, I don't know if you talked to uh, Antoine about it, but uh, I know, I do know about it. (laughs) So we were kind of, the, the deal was delayed basically because of Freddie Mac and all of that. And um, so then we, then we had a couple of investors. So one of the investor, because we started this like, you know, September, October last year, mm-hmm. October last year. And then there was, the, we were waiting on the seller to do a 1031 exchange with some, find another property and all of that. So that was delayed. And then so, and it was fine for us. We already had identified the uh, investors and then they were fine. But then that was in October and then we didn't get their money. Uh, We didn't ask for their money until uh, when we were about to close. And then, um, so then one one investor bailed out and then said, ah, okay, so now we have to find, uh, and we're not doing syndication. We're just doing like a partnership. We have like, four partners, three or four partners on that one. And then, um, yeah, so one of the guy, uh, one of the investor bails out and says, oh, I need the money somewhere else or I don't have the money anymore. And he's like, okay, now we have to find some, now we have to find, raise some more money to fill that. And then the scary thing is that one of our investors, we had the money, she sent the money in, but then she said, and then the COVID happened and then Freddie Mac, the things there was a delay on the Freddie Mac side and then she said oh do you mind uh, sending the money back <laughs> to uh, to me uh, and then until you're ready to close then I'll then I'll send you the money back and I said okay mm-hmm. <laughs> that's an yep. additional risk and I want to be like caught like two weeks before closing and say hey you know yeah I changed my mind yeah so, but luckily um, she sent the money back uh, for the closing and um, thank goodness but otherwise that would have been another headache but um, yeah so that's so that's real money I mean you know they want to have they want to make sure that um, you know like yeah that they have commitments so sometimes that the uh, they don't know when things are going to close there's a big timing issue uh, that uh, that is involved and um, yeah so you have to be cognizant of that and uh, keep keep your head cool absolutely the other thing too that I'm, I know, uh, you mentioned that this is real money. Um, and uh, to me, like this is something that's very important to, um, well, to me and to us in our company, and I suspect for you as well, is to really respect the investor's money. Um, so we take more risk with our own money than we, we do with, uh, with our investors. We wanna make sure that our, invest, that our investor's money is as safe as possible. Of course, there's a risk component to that, but for us, like this is very, very important um, that we really respect um, respect their, the money that they, they've invested with us. Yeah, you have a fiduciary responsibility to protect your investors' money. This is not just, hey, I'm going to get rich because I use other people's money. This is 
serious. These people work hard for their money and this is their money that they're trying to put to work to get to the point of financial freedom or, or build up a nest egg or retire. And, you know, if you're not going to respect their money, you shouldn't be doing this, uh, yeah. plain, plain and simple. And, uh, you know, the investor comes first and their money comes first, their returns come first. And, you know, and then we align our goals with them to build and grow together. Mm -hmm. um, and I would go a step further, not just respecting their money, but respecting them as a person. You know, we, oh, yeah. we like to have a relationship with our investors mm -hmm. and we would prefer to have a small group of investors that we know, like, and trust that we can consider yeah. um, growing a friendship with than a thousand investors who are just going to give us money that I don't know from Adam. And so yeah. uh, we're really, you know, serious and we take a lot of time and we put a lot of energy and effort to get to know our investors and, mm -hmm. and celebrate our investors and, uh, you know, eventually grow those friendships with our investors. So yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. You have to respect their money. Um, and uh, there's just no other way around it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I knew we were would be on the same page. So I really appreciate that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I find especially when it's maybe I see that more like in on the uh, like on the smaller like the flip flippers and stuff like that. Maybe a little. I saw a couple of things. Maybe because I lost some money on that, like actually lending money, being joint ventures on single family flips with uh, some investors and you know so and yeah i think that's why it's important to you know get to know who the people are that you're um, going to invest with and you want to know like and trust your sponsors and once you find a sponsor or you know a lead syndicator or, or whatever you want to call them uh an operator yeah. you know those those people are gold i mean because you want to know they're going to do right by you and once they prove that to you you know you got to keep going to that well, definitely, because there's people out there that will tell you, hey, look, it was in the documents that you can lose your money. And uh, I, I'm sorry, but I lost your money. And, uh, you know, that's not really, even though that's in the documents, that's not how we look at it. Yeah. Uh, we want to preserve the capital and we want to grow their wealth. Um, yeah. And we'll do everything in our, in our you know, in, in, in our realm to, to make sure that happens no matter what. Yeah. So, um so now I think I'd like to transition to your existing kind of like project in, um, if you want to tell us a little bit about, about it, um, you know, kind of like, so we have an idea of kind of like what kind of, uh, projects you're dealing with, the size, the number of people and all of that. And yeah. Kind of how you got, you got into that. Absolutely. So, uh, our latest project was, uh, we closed in November of last year and uh, it's 128 units, about $15 million property in Phoenix, which is one of our markets. We focus in Phoenix and Tucson. Mm -hmm. And um, the way we found that one was through relationships. Just like with your investors, you want to have relationships with brokers and partners mm -hmm. and all sorts of different people. And this one came three weeks after we closed our, our last property. And uh, it was with one of our, uh, our partners on our first property. Mm -hmm. And he has a full-time job. And he called me and he said, hey, Kyle, I got this deal. It's off market right now. We've closed a couple of deals with these brokers, but I don't have time to underwrite it. Can you underwrite it? And I underwrote it that day. It looked mm -hmm. like it made sense. Me and my mm -hmm. other business partner drove out to Phoenix the next day. We left at 3 a.m. We got there at 9 a.m. And then uh, two days later, the first day it went to market, we had it under contract. And so um, in, in the market environment, this was last year, of course. Now we're the COVID, so the market's definitely changed. Yeah. Um, but back then, you needed to act quick and move quickly yeah. and, and show that you were serious about the deals. And that's kind of what we did to separate ourselves to get that deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think in, in Phoenix and Tucson, I think these markets are pretty... Um, 
they're pretty hot. They're pretty very active markets, from what I understand. And um, so, yeah, you definitely need to act very quickly if you want to get the deal. And how often, how, um, so building the relationship basically with the people, the uh, realtors and stuff like that. So that really helped you. So it's always about, about the people. It's always about the networking basically and uh, having people recognize that you're going to take action. You're going to do something, you, you know, you're not just uh, kind of like looking around. You're actually, if yep. something interests you, you're going to pull the trigger. The thing that separated us was we would go out to the markets twice a month. And I still do that right now, even though I lived, live in California, right? I think that a lot of people call brokers and I still call them on a weekly basis and catch up with them and get to know them and build that relationship. But when you're going out to the market and you're meeting someone face to face, touring properties, buying them lunch, buying them dinner, it's different. They know you're serious because not, someone's not going to come to that market every other week. Yeah. or even or every month if you can't make it out there every other week um if they're not serious right yeah. um so you know this business is not one that you can sit behind the phone and, and do all your work behind the computer and behind your desk um making phone calls is one thing but if you really want to separate yourself you've got to get out there and yeah. get to know these people and so that's that's one thing that we do we're out in our markets quite often yeah yeah and for us in uh in midtown memphis it's uh, interestingly enough, there was definitely a broker relationship that, you know, somebody that helps us brought us a deal in, uh, in Midtown Memphis a while back, and then he brought us other deals uh, later on. But uh, also, interestingly enough, is the, the person that we bought our first 20-unit uh, apartment building, he also had, he had a portfolio of uh, apartment building that he wanted to kind of like convert into something else. He was looking more towards uh, triple net and kind of upper uh, commercial buildings. So, um, so he was, and he knew us. So he would contact us before uh, putting anything on the market and say, hey, you know, do you want just, are you interested in any of these? And then, uh, so, so that was kind of interesting. So he knew we were serious. He knew we could, uh, you know, he, he also saw the, re uh, the renovations that we did on the previous uh, property that he owned. And then he would get compliments about, hey, I saw your, uh, <laughs> you, uh, you fixed up your, uh, your apartment building. It looks very nice, blah, blah, blah. So, well, you know, I, I don't own it anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> so he got the con. So that's all of that really helped, uh, you know, build uh, that, the relationship with, with him and all of that. And, uh, and this is why this, uh, the last one that we bought, uh, the 16 unit that we bought was from him as well. And it, it, that's why we had dragged on like this for a while. And he just said, oh, I need a little bit more time to find 1031. I said, okay, you know, no problem. And then we were able to also, when we needed time, we were also able to, because we had the relationship with him, yep. we were also able to talk to him and say, hey, you know, we need, we need a couple, we need a month, an extra month here to, uh, to fix this thing. Yep. It's all about relationships. And as you build your track record, things get easier and easier because you have built those relationships and yeah. those relationships can really save your butt in, in certain situations. You oh, know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's next for you, uh, Kyle? Yeah, right now, you know, we had a property under contract right when the COVID-19 stuff uh, happened and it dropped out. The seller just didn't 
feel like uh, given the situation that it was going to be able to go through and, and be able to close because we couldn't do due diligence and things like that. So unfortunately yeah. that dropped and we were really excited for that property and to get a couple more later this year, but uh, you know, things have changed. And so we've got to pivot a little bit. So we're hoping that it's going to be, you know, towards the end of 2020, you're going to start to see some opportunities. So mm-hmm. still continuing to build relationships with the brokers and, and contact them and, you know, keep our, our eyes and ears open. But at the same time right now, we're focused on ma- managing and maintaining our occupancies at our current properties and working mm-hmm. with our residents through this tough time uh, because, you know, no one's seen this situation. So really our focus is there and informing our investors and keeping them up to date with the situation. Um, and then since we're home all the time, you know, my business partner and I have decided to merge companies. So we're building out the website right now. We're doing educational content, building out some eBooks and then even writing a book. So um, trying to keep ourselves busy while we're um, sitting here and, you know, we know the next two or three months, we're not going to be doing any deals because it just doesn't make sense um, for us. And so you've got to uh, kind of pivot and, and think of other ways and opportunities to get ahead. And so we're doing a lot of the things that uh, we probably couldn't get to while we were out sourcing deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So any, um, so as we wrap up here, like any kind of like recommendation, book recommendations that you, you had, things that that's, uh, shattered your world that you want to recommend? Yeah, I think uh, for just general reading, I love the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I think his whole story about uh, perseverance and how he built Nike was fantastic. From a multifamily uh, perspective, uh, Joe Fairless's syndication book, his most recent one, if you look at that, we're basically following it step by step on how he built his company and how he suggests syndicators build theirs. And so that's been very impactful on our lives. Okay. Oh, that's very good. And then if you want to, uh, and you mentioned also your, your meetups and your podcasts and stuff like that. So uh, if you want to uh, send me the links, you can talk about them now. Uh, and if you send me the link, I can put them in the comments. So if anybody's interested in uh, following up on uh, the meetups and the podcast. Yeah, I sent you my bio. And so all that, all my links are actually in my bio, but our podcast is Passive Income through Multifamily Real Estate. would love to have people check that out. We've got Two different episodes. Mondays talks about passive income and how you can build your wealth. So those are for more passive investors. And then on Fridays, we've got an asset management Fridays episode where we educate operators on how to become better operators. And so that's a great way. And then uh, you can also check out aptcapitalgroup.com. Um, and that's where our new website is. And that'll be launching in a couple of days. Um, and uh, I always give out my phone number too, because I'm happy to talk to people about getting yeah. started or any way that I can help. It's 562-833-5010. Okay. Thank you, Kyle. And uh, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. You have an interesting year ahead. So uh, I think yep. we all do, but uh, for you, there's a little bit going to be a little bit of pivoting. I think that we're going to have to uh, figure out. So, um, so good luck, have a great year and hopefully we can talk to you uh, a little bit later this year. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martel. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.